0: on Romans 15, one to seven tonight. And what we're gonna do is, uh, we're gonna read the whole portion and then we're just gonna start unpacking it verse by verse by verse. So, uh, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And you should have just received um, gospel-centered community discussion guides. These will help you uh, in in your week as you go to study further the, the text Uh, As you all know, you can't hit everything in a text, even if it's one or two verses, you just can't hit it all in in a 45 minute message. Uh, And so these guides are going to help you through the week to go deeper into the text that we're about to study now. And they will help you if you're part of a gospel center community group to facilitate discussion and good questions. So uh, on that note, if you're not in a group, we would love for you to get into a group. Uh, this is kind of the lifeblood of the church Sunday worship, which you're a part of right now. And then throughout the week, we meet in homes throughout the city. And we call that gospel centered community Uh, And we use these discussion guides to facilitate discussion and prayer and care for one another. All right, for those of you who haven't been here for a while or you're new, I'm going to give you four preliminary truths and one quick application before we dig in. Okay, quick. So here we go. Number one, these commands that we find in these verses take place within the context of the local church. Paul is writing to the church at Rome, or churches, house churches in Rome. And these commands are not abstract, but they are to focus on individuals connected to a local church. Then, by extension, they are connected to neighbors, and then those maybe an ocean away. But the immediate context is the local church, so keep that in mind. Number two, this section of Romans 15... Following 13b and 14 is all about loving other Christians and striving for unity. Now, I find this remarkable. Chapters 1 through 11 is heavy, thick, rich doctrine of the gospel. Then chapters 12 through 16 is application of that doctrine. And amazingly, in Romans 13b, even through now, Romans 15, Paul's dealing with love and unity and service. He's taking a lot of verses to hit the same theme over and over. Apply what you've just learned theologically, apply what you've just learned doctrinally. Love one another. Strive after unity. And that will be, in part, what our sermon is about tonight. Number three the application or response to deep and complex theology is always a life of love and service, and seeking the good of others. Let me say that again. The application or response to deep theology, complex theology, Romans 1 to 11, is a life lived in love, service, and seeking the good of others. As it's been said, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Okay. Number four, your spiritual maturity. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to grow Christians up sanctification. That's what we're doing in part here. We're worshiping God by singing, by submitting to his word. We're getting under God's word. We're trying to grow up together. Okay. Christian maturity is measured by your godly attitude and actions towards others, not how much Bible and theology you understand. Now, we want you to understand Bible and theology, trust me, but I know many people who know a ton of Bible and a ton of theology. They live like pagans and they are spiritual babies. Your attitude towards other people. And your actions towards other people, a life of love, will prove your spiritual maturity, not how much you know. And I know that's hard. And trust me, this is a church that values sound theology, sound doctrine, good teaching, biblical exposition. We are that church. But we will say again and again, Jesus said himself, The world will know you are my disciples by your theology? No. By the love you have for one another. Again, your good theology should lead somewhere. Action, a life of love lived out Monday through Monday. All right, so here's the application. That was four truths. Here's one application. Let us seek to know as much as possible. And live out as much as we are able to God's glory and the good of others. Let me say that again. Let us seek to know as much as possible. Let's dig as deep as we can into the scriptures and mine as much truth as we possibly can. But then let us live out. Don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. Then let us live out as much as we are able by God's help, the Holy Spirit, to his glory, and to the good of others. Amen? We go with that? All right, so let's dig in. Okay, let's, let's dig in. Romans 1 to 11, thick, heavy, rich gospel theology. 13 through 16, application. Here we are in Romans 15, 1 to 7, heavy application. All right, so let's, let's apply. We who are strong, verse 1, 15, 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, if you've been with us for the past month, you know that the context here is conscience. Every Christian has a right or wrong detector inside of them. And it will allow them to do certain things and not allow them to do certain things. And there are a lot of gray areas in the Bible. There are a lot of fuzzy, what do I do in this situation? Okay, It's not black and white. There is wisdom to be applied, but then there are also some people who they are free to do a certain thing, but their conscience binds them there, and so they shouldn't do it because their conscience is screaming, Don't do it. The classic example that's been used already is we have a lot of former drug addicts and alcoholics in this church. We're kind of that church, and I love you. I'm, I'm in that camp, I've lived that life. And for them, it is not wise to go and have drinks at the bar for fellowship and fun. It's just not wise for them to do that. Now, some people have lived such a long time sober that they can do that and it doesn't tempt them. But there's some people, even the mere smelling of it, oh my, it's like it pulls them towards drunkenness and non-soberness. And so while Christians are free to drink alcohol, some people should not, and then we who are free should not look down on those who are not free to do it because you say, oh, well, you're just weak. You're just weak, and you're strong, so what you're doing is you're, you're elevating yourself, and then you're looking down on other people, and that's an arrogant position, so that's, that's a simple example. We could apply that across the board, and it has been by Eddie and by Pete and by Justin over the past month, and so go back EternalCity.org or our YouTube channel. Listen to those sermons. They did a great job uh, parsing out and making concrete what I just said as a truth. So the idea here in verse 15.1 is Christians are not to live for themselves. Now that's hard, isn't it? That might sound like a simple truth to believe, but here's the deal. The moment you're born into the United States of America, you are spoon-fed that it's all about you. Life's about you, other people are meant to serve you, and, and listen, I'm a parent, and so we treat the kids like that too. In fact, my kids, they have little posters, it's all about, and you put the name, and then it's like my favorite food, and my favorite color, and my favorite movie, and then, and then what happens at about age four is we got to start reversing that on the kids, and we say, it's not all about you. And they're like, well, what about the poster? And, and so the whole Christian life is one of rebuking the poster in your room. Because you, you look at the poster and you're like, look at the poster, man. It's all about me. And, and the Christian life is one of, no, die to self, live for others. Don't forsake your needs as all important, top tier. Consider the needs of others, top tier. Man, that's hard, isn't it? In fact, it's not just hard, it is impossible without the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. This is a supernatural religion, if I could put it that way. This is not something man on his own, minus God, can accomplish. No, you need the third person of the Trinity to even live out verse 1 of Romans 15. Not to please yourself. Now, am I saying we shouldn't Sabbath, we shouldn't recreate recreation, we shouldn't watch our favorite movie, we can't stream any Netflix? I'm not saying that. But for most of us, we have this nice kind of bunker that we isolate ourselves in, and we're like, you can come in for five minutes, right? Yeah. But no more. And we will not give ourselves to other people because we've been spoon-fed from the time we were children that it's all about me, it's all about me. And this verse is saying, in application of the thick, heavy doctrine, it's not all about you, it's not. So we who are strong have an obligation, guess what that word in the Greek means? Indebted to, indebted to, it means you owe someone. If you're a Christian, This verse is laying on top of you that you owe it to other Christians, especially the weak. You owe it to them to bear with their failings. What does the word failing mean? It means weakness. It means from sickness or disease. You who are strong, you understand your freedoms in Christ. You are to give up your freedom for the sake of others in certain circumstances and instances. Okay? And by doing that, you are loving your other brother or sister. If they do it, they violate your conscience. their conscience. If you do it, you don't do any violation. Right? Because all you're doing is giving up freedom. You're not doing anything to violate your conscience. If they have the drink or if they watch that movie or if they go into that place... And you're urging that they are violating their conscience. And as we learned last week, to do so is neither safe nor right, and it's sin, whatever's not done out of faith. Okay? And so we who are the strong, we understand the freedom we have in Christ. Galatians 5.1 is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We are to bear with the immaturity or the weakness or the sickness even in the Greek of those who are weaker in conscience. Not to look down on them, not to treat them as lesser, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to, because look at all my freedom and look what I can do that they can't. No, you are to bear with them. You have an obligation to do so. You owe it to them, okay? Again, this posture takes the power of the Holy Spirit. It takes humility and it takes strong faith. Faith, not in general, not floating in the air, but trust Landing on the promises of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it takes. Verse 2. Let each of us, Christians, please his neighbor for his good. Now remember, in the very intro, context, local church. So within the local church, the believers that you worship with, who you call church member, brother and sister, the the commands of God are never floating in the fog, in the clouds. They're always concrete and on the pavement. And so this has to do with how you treat, if you want to get real technical, those in your own household first, because that's your first neighbor, then extended your church family, and then extending from there, your legitimate like neighbor across the street who shares the yard with you divided by the fence. And then from there, the larger city, and then from there, the nation, and from there, the, the other continents, if you will. But it always starts at home, and then the circle gets bigger as it goes out. Okay? And so we are to please our neighbor for what? For their good. Now many of us we we cannot help this we imagine that everybody else is obligated to serve me and so you're even reading it like that you're like see everyone should serve me It's not the way you're supposed to read that you're reading it backwards you are to serve everyone else And yes everyone is to also serve you but you're not excluded friend this doesn't justify your utter selfishness. I love this image that Martin Luther, the great reformer, gives of sin. He says it's incurvatus say it's Latin, and it's the self-curved inward. And so you could think of all your energies, all your emotions, all of your aims coming out from you like arrows and then boomeranging back in on yourself. Everything is about me. That's sin, Luther says. It's a good definition of sin. It's not the only one, but it's a good one. It's all the self going out and then all folding back in on the other person where Christians are to have the energy, the emotion, the efforts go out towards God and it lands on other people. Did you know that you serve God by serving other people? You're like, I, I live for God. How? I, I read the Bible and I pray. Okay that is not concrete. That is part, but that is certainly not the whole, right? Your faith and your faith lived out, as James would say, works without, or faith without works is dead, James would say. I understand what he means. He means we can talk a good game. We can have words. We can make claims, but your actions will back up your claims. And without the actions, we throw the words out, right? We all know people who could talk a good game, but then they do not back anything up with with their actions. And so faith without works is dead. In other words, your claiming to have faith and trust in Jesus and be born again and be a Christian and, and be living the life of faith will be proved by how you live your life, period. Some people are shaking their heads. Other people are afraid. And if you're afraid, you probably should be. Like if that's concerning to you, that's a good thing. Because the concern might be the Holy Spirit positively convicting you so that you would turn, which means repent, okay? turn around, turn away from that and act differently by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we got to keep going. So, what is the aim? To build him or her up. Build up. Now, if you remember way back to the first message of 2022, it was all about we want to be a church that builds each other up. How many of you remember that? Just humor me. Thank you. Look at that. At least 10 people. Love you guys. Thanks for the encouragement. To build literally means building, construction, or upbuilding. And as you know, if you've ever done any kind of house remodeling or any kind of yard remodeling, you know that it is way easier and takes way less time to do demo work than it does to build skillfully. Right? You can hire someone to tear down your house if they have the right machines. They can get that done in two or three days. But to build a house every day, eight to ten hours, months, and months, multiple disciplines plumbers and electricians and uh, framers and drywallers and roofers and the list goes on. Landscapers. It takes so much more energy, effort, time, and skill to build than it does to wreck things and tear things down and ruin things. And I submit to you, much of our social media has nothing to do with building up and everything to do with tearing down. You know why? Laziness. Build something. You know what I'm saying? Let's let's see you build something rather than just tear everyone down and tear the country down and tear this down and tear How about you do something constructive? This verse gives us the must. You don't have an option. I'm giving it to you straight, right? Paul Paul's not playing games, so I'm not playing games with his words. We have an obligation to build people up. Not tear them down. Did you know that you'll not find anywhere in the scripture commands to tear people down? But you would think that there's all kinds of commands the way we treat people tear one another down, do a good job, make them feel like slime, make them drowned in their own filth. No, No, no verses like that. Most people know intuitively that they're terrible. And they get no encouragement. They get no building up. And so if we could be a church that does the opposite of the culture, how magnetic and attractive that would be. And so we should build up. And then what's the aim? For their good. Look, let each of us please his neighbor for his or her good. Build them up. What does the word good mean? In the Greek, it means useful, beneficial. Something that's good is beneficial and useful, not useless, not abstract, but actual good. And we'll get there, okay? We'll get there. How can we accomplish this? You must get outside of your own little world, your own self-project, and you have to get into the lives of others. And you know what that means? It's gonna be messy. The Christian life is not clean, and tight, and tidy, and you're just full of energy and refreshment. Man, it is messy. You get bloody. You get torn down by others who you're trying to help, and then you're exhausted. Welcome to Christianity. But you know what? The Holy Spirit comes when we're exhausting ourselves for the sake of others, and he energizes us with his energy, the same energy that created the universe and resurrected the Son of God inside of you, enabling you to love and serve others well. I'm going to read something I wrote here. One practical way to live this out is to join a gospel-centered community. You will encounter the needs of real people as opposed to the digital version of people. We know all about the digital version of people, but that's not the real them. Just think about what you post and don't post. That's not the real people. Okay? You encounter real people that you can look in the eye, give them a hug, shake their hand, see the tears, and maybe even cry with them. Put a hand on someone's real shoulder, not with the oculus, the real thing, a real shoulder, and say real words to God, pray. Join a group. You can, you can start to put all this in practice this week. That's a good application. That's a good way to live this out. And you know what you can do? You can take their practical needs into your life and begin to help. That would be a great application of these first two verses. You can use your skills, your wisdom, your resources to build others up and to do good to them. Amen? That'd be awesome. And if all of us are doing that, Imagine the good that could be accomplished, not just within the walls, but then when it seeps out into the community. What an attractive place this would be. Verse three, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, all right, I'm gonna stop there. Paul is so masterful about how he grounds and motivates us to do this. He could command us as an apostle, and he is, but he says, look, here's why, here's how. Here's how. Christ, Jesus, your Savior, he did not please himself, as it is written, quoting Psalm 69.9, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. And so he's saying, as Jesus did not come into the world to serve himself and to demand of others and have bad attitudes towards others, rather he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, a quick technical, here's how we apply this in context. Probably, some commentators point this out, I I lean this way, Uh, probably the reproaches here are applying to the weak reproaching the strong for the things they're doing because that's in the context. And so the stronger to take those reproaches into themselves and absorb them and not get offended and not say, I'm done with you. You appreciate anything I do for you. No, you absorb it and you keep loving and serving as Christ does us. Do you think we we offend Jesus every day? Absolutely. And yet he absorbs our offenses literally on the cross 2000 years ago so that we owe nothing to God. We have no condemnation. We are fully forgiven and free from all our sin, but yet our continual sin, he continues to absorb. He does not hold our sin against us. And so as Christ does that for us, and we meditate on that, and we realize the debt that we owe to God, we don't pay him back by doing this, but we're like, wow, you forgave me of everything, past, present, and future. You hold me in no sin debt. I can certainly do that to others. Not to pay back God, because you can't pay back God for what he did. But as a response of worship for what he's done, we do this to others. It's as it's been done to you, now you go and do likewise. The reproaches that fell on you fell on me. And just a a technical side note, the theologian nerd in me. If you read Psalm 69, it is one of the most quoted uh, psalms in the New Testament. And it is filled with references to Jesus. And we're going to get that uh, a little deeper in verse 4. But you can see it; it's applied many times in many verses. This is just one of them that Paul applies to Jesus there in Psalm 69. Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now, verse four is where I want to spend like the most time, okay? And then we're going to fly through five, six, and seven, all right? So don't be afraid if I'm like, you're like, oh man, he's spending a lot of time on this verse. Just relax. You'll appreciate it, I hope, and pray. Now, quickly, here's what Paul is saying. Whatever was written in former days, Old Testament, The 39 books of the Old Testament is what is being referred to here. And when the New Testament points at the Old Testament and says something, we should pay attention because there's more Old Testament than there is New Testament. Have you ever opened up to Matthew, uh, first book of the New Testament, and then looked how much Old Testament there is compared to New Testament? Yet we barely know the books of the Old Testament. Isn't there an Abraham Lincoln verse 5? You know, chapter five, verse six. No, there's not. Hey, but you wouldn't know that because you, we don't read the Old Testament. Most Christians are like, man, that's weird. There's stuff about not mixing fabric and, and when a woman is on her monthly cycle, there's all kind of weird stuff in there about that. And there is. So you do have to understand how the, the Old Testament fits into what's called redemptive history. You do? Man, you, some of you are looking at me weird for that illustration. Read Leviticus Just read through Leviticus, and you'll be like, what in the world? This is the Bible? I'll leave it at that. Read Leviticus this week, okay? It's it's long, but you won't be looking at me crazy and shaking your head. Just read it. You'll be like, what in the world am i reading but the point is leviticus is beneficial for us this is what's being said whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction but we have to understand how to apply the old testament and that takes wisdom and understanding okay and and coming in 2023 we're going to dive into the old testament okay we're going to we're going to dig also with advent we're going to do some redemptive historical biblical theology work so let's dig in quickly Jesus himself knew his Bible, and do you know what his Bible was? The 39 books of the Old Testament. No New Testament books were written yet, and Jesus was utterly anchored in the 39 books of the Old Testament. What we know as the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, I had to learn this as a pastor. I'm about eight years in as a lead pastor. And in my trying to help people, um, I I would crash and burn and I would get frustrated because the people I would help would not receive the help or they'd get mad and leave. And and so I would lament and seek coaching and counsel from other pastors. And I can't tell you how many times in those early several years I heard, you're not the Messiah. And I'd be like, I know I'm not the Messiah. I know I'm not Jesus. I'm very self-conscious that I'm not the Messiah. Yet, what I had to learn was I was functioning as if I were the people I was trying to help, Savior, Messiah. And I had to learn personally I can't save any of you. I can't save you from your problems. I can't save you from your angst, your guilt, your worry, your fear, your addictions. I can't save you. And I had to learn this, I'm not responsible to. You want to know something opposite of that? Jesus was very self-conscious that he was the Messiah. He knew deep in his being who he was, and he was not afraid to let other people say it and to say it to other people. So as much as I understand I am not the Messiah, Jesus absolutely understood he was the Messiah. Here's one example, okay? Now, why why am I doing this? Because what was written in the past was all pointing to Jesus. And I'm gonna seek to show you that for about five minutes. Okay, here's here's the story in John 4. Jesus is traveling up through Samaria, which is a, a people that the Jewish people did not like. They were, if you will, a racial other. They were half Gentile and half Jewish, and they worshipped differently, and they didn't accept certain books of the Old Testament. And he encounters in Samaria a woman who's had five husbands, probably five divorces, and she's now living with a man who's not her husband. And she's drawing water at noon, probably to avoid people, and Jesus shows up and he says, give me a drink. I'm thirsty. And she's like, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And there's all kind of background there that I can't unpack. But that was super uncultural. That was a political no-no. Absolutely not. And so she's shocked. How is it that me being a woman and a Samaritan and you're a Jew, how is it that you're even asking me for water? And, And he flips it on her and he says, look, if you knew who it was who was speaking to you, you would have asked him, speaking in the third person, Jesus is good for that. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water and you would thirst no more after drinking it. Oh, sir, wh- where are you going to get this water? The well is deep and you don't have a bucket. All right, she's thinking one dimensional, this plane. He's thinking spiritual. And, and it gets to the point where he confronts her sin prophetically She's like, oh, I perceive you're a prophet. Now she's getting there. She's starting to understand who he is. And then as he addresses her deepest longing, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. Christ means Messiah. When he comes, he will tell us all things. What's Jesus' response? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. And you remember the story. She drops her water pot. She runs into town and she starts telling everyone, come meet a man that's told me everything I've ever done. And literally the whole Samaritan town comes out to meet Jesus. It's amazing. It's a great story. I can't wait to go through the gospel of John in the future. One example of many that we could point to that Jesus was very conscious of his being the Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah, the son of God. Let me ask you a question. Where did he get that idea? The Old Testament. Jesus knew his Old Testament so well, far more than we will ever understand it. He understood the deep layers and it was all about him. This is now the pursuit of my my life is to see how the Old Testament shows Jesus in the gospel. I just love it. It excites me. And so here's just a few, Okay. In 1 Timothy 3 14 to 16, Paul is instructing his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says this As for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom, Greek plural, uh, multiple people, whom you learned it. Now, he learned it from his mother, his grandmother, from Paul, and from others. He's like, "Don't, Don't forget what you've learned. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, Old Testament, Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, we often think of the New Testament as able to make us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. What Paul's telling Timothy is the Old Testament can point you to Jesus and you can be saved through the Old Testament. And we're like, Leviticus? Absolutely. Absolutely, Leviticus, and maybe we will go through it someday, but just know that right here in the New Testament, Paul is saying to his son in the faith, the Old Testament is able to make you wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who didn't even arrive until the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New All scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here's the application. All 66 books of the Bible are for your good and benefit, and all of them, Genesis to Revelation, can make you wise unto salvation. Don't skip out on your Old Testament Jesus speaking to a hostile crowd here in John 5. Okay, They're literally seeking to kill him because he, a mere man, makes himself out to be God. That's prior to this. And so Jesus speaking, he says, but the testimony that I... Jesus speaking, have is greater than that of John. That would be John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, who proclaimed the way uh, and and makes straight the paths of the Lord. He was the prophetic Elijah who was to come, prophesied in the Old Testament. He says, I have greater testimony than John. John was just pointing to me. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works I am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me, referring to his miracles and his teaching. All those were signs that pointed beyond themselves to who Jesus was. So when he raised someone from the dead or he healed someone or he cast out a demon or he taught with authority, that was all signs pointing to his claims to be the Messiah and to be the Christ. The very works that I'm doing bear witness about me. My actions speak louder than my words, in other words. And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, speaking of God the Father. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Now that is seriously offensive because these are Jews steeped in the Old Testament from childhood, uh, uh, going to synagogue every week, reciting the Shema and, and memorizing the Torah. And so he's saying, you don't know God and you don't know his word add insult to injury because they're already mad at him. They're already getting an argument with him. (laughs) And so you don't have his word abiding in you. How do you know, Jesus? For you do not believe the one he has sent. I'm the Messiah. God sent me and you are rejecting me. That's how I know. Now look at verse 39 very carefully. This is why I brought this scripture to bear on you. You search the scriptures, Old Testament, because you think that in them... You have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What they were doing is they were digging into the Old Testament and trying to live out its laws and commands to please God. Tithing even their spices Literally, Jesus says they do that. They, they strain their drink so they don't consume the smallest of unclean animals. We search the scriptures so that we can obey them to a T and offer up our obedience to God for salvation. And Jesus says, no, these very scriptures speak of me. They're all pointing beyond themselves to me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you would have life and life eternal. In other words, the whole Old Testament is screaming Jesus. And not only are they stiff arming him, but they're trying to kill him. And so from Jesus' own words in John 5, 39, he says, the whole Old Testament's about me, guys and you refuse to come to me. You love the Old Testament. You try to live it out for salvation, and yet the whole Old Testament's about me, and you will not come to me. Luke 24, 25 to 27. This is the resurrection. This is the seven-mile road to Emmaus. Jesus is resurrected, but he's not revealed himself to the two disciples that are walking with him, And, and they're lamenting that this one called Jesus, they thought he would be the Messiah, but but the Romans put him to death and, and their people handed him over to the Romans. And what's worse is it's the third day and his body's missing and several of our women claiming that they saw him resurrected and they're just downcast. And his response to all this, this is Jesus resurrected, they don't recognize him. He, Jesus said to them, his two disciples, distraught that he's dead His body is missing, and they don't understand what happened. Oh, foolish ones. Ouch. I mean, aren't they hurting in their hearts, Jesus? (laughs) Foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe, look at this, all that the prophets have spoken. I, I can't get over that. He doesn't say, slow to believe your own women who said they saw me resurrected. Slow to believe my words that I prophesied while I was still alive. No, he says, you're foolish because you don't believe the Old Testament. Wow. All that the prophets have spoken. They told you this was going to happen. And he rebukes them for not understanding their Old Testament. Was it not necessary and had to happen that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. In other words, the Old Testament told you this was supposed to happen, and so it had to happen because the Old Testament said it. And beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books, Moses, and the prophets, that would be the next section, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, he opened up the Old Testament to them, and he showed him himself. And then the conclusion of this story is they get to the house in in Emmaus, the the little town. And so they invite him to stay. And and as uh, they're eating, they ask him to do the blessing and he breaks bread. And upon breaking bread and praying, they realize it's him and he disappears. It's amazing. It's a great story. You should read it point of this is Jesus himself was conscious that the whole old testament was about him and he said it was about him over and over and over again here's Peter I'm running out of time though you have not seen him Jesus you love him though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory that's us we don't see him We can't hug him and hold him. We can't sit in in the crowd and listen to him lecture. But even though we haven't seen him, we believe in him. And we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. What's the outcome of our faith? The salvation of our souls. Eternal life. Living forever in an uncursed world. Concerning the salvation, the prophets... Old Testament, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they prophesied about Jesus and this salvation, searched and inquired carefully their own writings, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, Messiah, and the subsequent glories. In other words, when Isaiah wrote, The Spirit of Jesus, that's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who's also called the Spirit of God, who's also called the Spirit of Jesus, the Trinity. Isaiah was looking into his own writings, trying to understand who will this Christ be and when will he get here? Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. The the original recipients of Peter's letter and us. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zechariah was serving us. Amos, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the things which angels long to look into. Now, I'd love to unpack that, but I can't. All it means is even the angels are boggled by this great salvation that's ours and they long to get on the inside of it, but they have to stand on the outside and look through the window. And they want to be on the inside. Who's on the inside? Us. We're on the inside of the salvation house. Angels are on the outside looking in, longing to understand what it's like to be in there, feasting as we feast. Get that. And, and, and I hate to say this, but for many of you, your salvation is like, eh, we'll put that in a drawer. Man, this next movie coming out, I've been waiting and waiting and I'm so excited. And it's like, Jesus, that's not good friends. It's not good because angels are longing to look into what we have as Christians. Now, am I saying you can't be excited for the next Spider-Man with Venom And I'm not saying that. I'm excited for it. But I better be way more excited about Jesus, salvation, the Bible, discipleship, people coming to know Christ. That better fire me up far more than the next Marvel movie. Amen? Okay. And some of you were happy that I didn't touch sports there. You're like, Marvel, and Steelers, blasphemy stone him. <laughs> all right. Now I told you, fear not. Okay. Cause this is going to take the most time. And then I'm going to burn through the last three verses. Okay. So this is, this is the actual application. And I was tempted to like spend 40 minutes out of my 45 on just what I'm about to do here. So I've restrained myself greatly for your sake. All right. In Genesis 28, so what am I doing here? What I'm about to do is show you how just in this one example of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. He had Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, that Jacob. This is right after uh, he had be- uh, deceived his brother Esau twice and now his father sends him away uh, to his own people to find a wife. So he's fleeing from his brother because his brother's about to kill him. And he is also going to look for a wife. So he's in the middle of that journey, going to another land. Okay, Jacob's story is about Jesus as is Abraham's, as is Isaac's, as is the 12 tribes, as is their journey into Egypt and out and and so on and so forth. But I'm going to show you with just this one little story, how the old Testament is all about Jesus. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. It's night. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, when I was a kid, we were in Sunday school, and all I remember about the Old Testament story here is the rock pillow. That's all I remember. Man, this dude slept on a rock for a pillow. Talk about my pillow. Like, that joint was a rock. And that's all I can remember. And I remember as a kid even trying it. Like, what does that feel like? And so I was so enamored by the rock pillow, I totally missed Jesus. Don't get infatuated by the rock pillow. It's good application. Here we go. And he dreamed. It must have been a little comfortable because he's dreaming. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on earth. That means one part of the ladder is on earth, the bottom of it. And the top reached to heaven. Jacob's ladder. You guys have ever heard this story? So imagine a ladder, a huge ladder. The bottom of it is on the ground on earth and the ladder is going all the way up into heaven. That's the picture. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. In other words, they were going up the ladder and coming down the ladder. They were going up the ladder and coming down the ladder. And behold, the Lord God "'stood above it and said, I am the Lord.'" Remember, this is to Jacob. "'I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, "'and the God of Isaac. "'The land on which you lie, "'I will give to you and to your offspring. "'Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, "'and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east, "'and to the north and to the south. "'And in you and in your offspring "'shall all the families of the earth be blessed.'" That's a Jesus promise, but that's not the only point here. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you, just made the promise. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, now get this. He wakes up out of the dream, slobber on the rock pillow, shakes his face. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Now now I wanna do a sermon right there because that could be your living room. That could be you scrolling. Surely the Lord was in this place, and I did not know it. But get this, and he was afraid, rightly so. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This is the interdimensional portal, is what he's saying, between heaven and earth, and this, where I'm standing, is God's house. Now, that's a cool story, but did you know that Jesus pointed to that story and then pointed to himself? The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. This is, he just emerged on the scene. He's calling his disciples. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, the two disciples he had just called prior to. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Old Testament. We found the Messiah whom Moses wrote about and who the prophets wrote about. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, in the Old Testament, you see the son of, that was their last name. So he didn't, Christ is not Jesus' last name. His last name was son of Joseph, which is how all these people at this time identified their last name. Son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, Nazareth is this small little nobody town. Can anything good come out of there, let alone the Messiah? Are you kidding me? Philip said to him, come and see. Come see with your own eyes. Come talk to him with your own mouth. And look what happens. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, I imagine this is the first thing he said to him as he's walking up to him. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And that must have struck a chord. Because look at his response. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? How is it that you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now he prophetically said, you were under a fig tree and I saw you. And the moment Nathaniel came, or, uh, Philip came to you, I saw it all before it happened. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? He's kind of shocked by that. Now watch this. You ready? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Jesus' favorite title for himself. Now apply, this is the very house of God. This is the portal to heaven. This is the very gate of heaven. What was Jesus saying? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to climb into heaven? You need to climb on me. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus himself is saying, Jacob's ladder, that story with the rock pillow, that's about me. And that's about salvation in me. Now, listen, you just saw through many different texts, the whole Old Testament does that. And I wish I had time to unpack every story, and we intend to as the years roll on. But you need to know that Jesus was so conscious of himself in all of the scriptures that he did this over and over again. And then the apostles who wrote after him and Paul who wrote epistles after him did the same thing. They pulled from the Old Testament and they showed Jesus. Now, what is the application? Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, the Old Testament, we might have hope. The Old Testament is for your hope. Now look at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Jesus Christ. Now, what you just missed is this. Through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, may the God of endurance and encouragement. That's purposeful. In other words, God encourages us and gives us endurance through the scriptures. And isn't it interesting that God is called the God of encouragement and endurance. He helps us to persevere in this life of faith and trial and trouble and fire. And how? Through the scriptures. Do you see it? It's not an accident that those verses are side by side. God is the God of encouragement. God is the God of endurance. How? Through the scriptures. Now, don't forget what I said earlier. We need to live out the scriptures. We don't just learn the scriptures. Okay, it's a both and. And then he says, what will it look like when we live out and persevere in this Christian life? Harmony with one another. Harmony with one another. In other words, you actually get along. Despite your many differences, you get along. There's unity within the church. That together, unity together, you may with one voice, many voices, but one voice, glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that when there's harmony between us and it's as if we're one voice praising God, God is glorified. By the way, that's why you were created for God's glory and to enjoy God's glory, here's a real concrete way you can glorify God, be in harmony with the other church members. <laughs> See, that's simple. No, it's not. No, it's not. We we have a commitment to unify people in this church, and as I've said before, this has been our most divisive commitment. Because we're trying to get together the left and the right, the black and the white. The rich and the poor, the addicted and the sober, and on and on we could go. And when all those intersections happen in one place, landmines get stepped on. And they have got stepped on, but we're not giving up. You know why? Because this is clear in the Bible. This is the outcome of our faith unity. And we will die on this hill, by the way. We're not going to die on the eschatology hill. I'm not going to die over my all-millennialism. No, but I will die on the unity hill. Why? Because it's clear, absolutely clear, crystal clear. And so friends, we're going to work towards this no matter how many people blow up, no matter how many people leave and get offended, no matter how many people don't understand what we're trying to do, we're going to die on this hill. Are you with me? I hope so. Some of you are. You're still here. (laughs) Therefore, welcome one another. There it is. There's the conclusion. Welcome one another. In other words, open arms regardless of the differences. Regardless of the perceived offenses, regardless of the attitude, regardless of their disposition currently, we always have hope that people will grow out of where they are currently, right? Just like you have hope for yourself, I'm not gonna be where I am right now forever. Praise God. I'm gonna keep growing. And so we have hope for one another in their immature state that they will grow just like we have hope for ourselves in our immature state that we also will grow. Right, Rachel? She's shaking her head, amen, yep. Welcome one another. Look, he does it again, as Christ welcomed you. As Jesus did this for you, you, though a sinner in need of a savior, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. While you were at your worst, he said, come to me. While you were in your slime and filth, he said, I'll take the slime and filth on the cross and I'll pay for all of it. So that there's none left for them. While we were at our worst, Jesus came to us and he picked us up out of the dirt, out of the dust, and he cleansed us. And now he says, as I've welcomed you when you were at your worst, you now go and do the same for others. You welcome other people because I welcomed you. I welcomed you to the degree that it killed me. My desire for you to be with me forever cost me my earthly life. And God was pleased with my sacrifice and he raised me from the dead. And friends, here's the promise. When we live a life of welcoming others, we too are headed for resurrection. Where we won't have to be commanded eagerly strive after unity. We won't be commanded be in harmony with one another. We won't because we will be. But no, there's so many commands to be unified and to be harmonized and don't eat and devour one another. Okay, there's all these verses because that's what we have a tendency to do. And so, as Christ has welcomed us, we welcome others. What does that do? It brings glory to God. Now, I have more notes. But I'm going to spare you, and we're going to pray, and we're going to take communion, and remember how Jesus has welcomed us. He welcomed us by his sacrificial death on the cross, absorbing all of our sin debt that we owe to God, and releasing us from all the penalty of our sin, past, present, and friends, we're headed to future glory where sin will plague us no more. No more temptation. No more falling. No more having to turn from sin. Isn't that good news? And so we celebrate now that we are welcomed in Christ by God and then we respond by welcoming others as we've been welcomed. And so if you're a Christian tonight, I would encourage you, take communion with us. Celebrate the welcoming of God through Christ And then let us welcome others. The worship team is going to come out and we're going to sing together. Um, Hold your communion elements until we're done singing. And then we will all take communion together to display our unity in Christ, to display that we are one people in God, and we will worship by doing so. So if you could stand and hold your communion elements until we're done singing.